if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12, all the way to 17. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go right ahead. If not, it'll be on the screen. And this is the reading of God's Word. And it says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for sin, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. If, you want to ta- if you're taking notes and you're wondering uh, how, how to summarize that paragraph, my, my beeper thing is not working, uh, here's what I would encourage you to write. The point of this text would be to say this. For the sake of Jesus, we are to submit and honor those over us. Let me repeat that again. For Jesus. Everything that we do is for Jesus. Our whole lives are consumed by making a decision about what we do, about what we do not do, or what we do 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 for the sake of Jesus. We are to submit and to honor those above us. I got to tell you an honest truth today, if I could be honest with you this morning, and that is, is I would rather have a root canal than talk about the subject of God and government. This is not an easy topic for me and for a lot of reasons. Uh, I would rather avoid it at all costs. And to be perfectly fair, I almost have avoided it at all costs. And uh, the reason is, is because I don't really believe that politicians lead the culture, they simply reflect it. And so as a personal philosophy, I've, gone, I've, I've always thought that if you want to change the culture, you have to change the heart. And for that, you really just need to focus on the individual and share the gospel and, and focus on the, G, the fact that Jesus is my king. So then that bears the question... What role does human government have on my spirituality? And for a long time, the answer would have been none. But I've been really convicted lately, and it didn't come uh, once, but uh, over time, that as I've been reading through God's word, something began to happen in a mist in my soul. And I didn't realize this until maybe a few years ago, but it has occurred to me this, that there is rarely a book in the Bible that doesn't deal with faith and government in some form. All throughout the Bible, there is a conversation about government, isn't there? Everywhere that there are believers in the Bible, eventually, who are trying to love God and love each other and share the good news of Jesus, they eventually run into the issue of faith and government at some point. It's there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first, well, maybe not Ruth, First Kings, Samuel, 
all the major and minor prophets. It's the main theme in the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' kingdom coming. It's there in Acts when the, when the uh, church is persecuted. It's sprinkled throughout all the letters, and it's there in Revelation. And it's, in fact... I would argue that when Jesus comes again, it's through the agency of government that he will set up the Antichrist. He is not going to come through the church. It's going to come through the state. And I'm at, and because of this, I, I've come to the conviction in my life that at my stage of life now, that there are very few things in life that impact our daily existence more than government. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, everything, your actions, how much you pay, where you go to school, what's taught in school, your health care, everything is affected by government in so, some form. So here's where I'm going with that. If it's true that one of the biggest variables on your day-to-day -day life is government, and it's true that the Bible uh, places you believers in a situation where they're constantly dealing with government in some way throughout the course of scripture, then it would be advantageous for you and I to develop a, a really good, robust theology based upon the word of God about what, God's, um, what the Bible says about government. We're not going to do that today. <laughs> what we are going to do today is we're going to talk about what Peter said, what about what First Peter says about government in relation to suffering and persecution. So today, so just 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 uh, before we dive right into the text, I think I need to set this up by just giving a quick uh, two-minute overview of uh, what the Bible does say about government and its role. So, just put simply, if you want to take notes, uh, just for uh, time's sake, I'm going to say this. The purpose of government is to praise the good and punish the evil. Another way of saying that would be that it's there to protect the people from evil by restraining evil. And I get this uh, primarily through Genesis 6-5. You know the story. Uh, this is the story right before, this is the story of the flood. And this is uh, what God's opinion of the condition of the earth is right before he saves Noah and tells him to build the ark. And he says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and his heart was pure and only evil continually. So I don't know what that would be like, right, to live in a world where 100% of everyone's actions and everyone's thoughts was always evil. But that was what was happening. So God said, enough of this. I'm going to start again. We have the story of the flood, God saving Noah. And then after the flood... Uh, God rescues Noah from the flood, and they come out of the out of the out of the ark. Uh, God says to Noah this, and I'm going to talk about this for a minute. He says this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. That's the ESV translation. An NIV translation would say, I will require an accounting. From every beast, I will require it for man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man by by his blood shall be said, for God made him in his own image. Now here, now before you kind of get your backs up and say, this is a discussion about capital punishment, I'm not going to talk about that today, but I want to say this, at least at this point in the history of the Genesis, what you're seeing is that God is laying down a line. 
right? And he's saying if someone's taking someone else's life, you can't let that go unanswered. Something, something has, to, has to deal. And the underlying principle is this. After the flood, for the first time, human beings are now accountable to each other. And it's all based upon every human, that every human is now made in God's image, and this sets us apart. So what is this? Well, Bible scholars and theologians would say that this is the very first beginnings of government. The idea that, then there is that God has instituted government in order to protect people and hold people account for the evil that we do. It's to protect people. You see it kind of flushed out more in Romans chapter 13.4 for uh, talking about authority and governing authority. He says, for he is God's servant for your what? For your good. Okay? We don't typically think like that, but the idea then is, is that if the government is there to protect you from evil, it's for your good, right? For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the who? Say it with me. The wrongdoer. Or you kind of get the same idea in, uh, in our text this morning where it says this, 1 Peter 2.14. When it talks about submitting the governing authorities or those who are sent by them, he says, they are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Underlying basic theology is this is that ideally, the biblical idea of government is that it is to protect the people from evil. Okay, so that's sort of the underlying kind of thinking going forward. So the question then that going to our text this morning is this, is what do you do then if the government sees Christians as the evil that it needs to protect from? Let me, let me repeat that again, okay? What do you, if the role of government is to protect its people from evil, to restrain evil, to punish evil, to commend good, and that's the role that God has called it to do, then what happens when it turns its sights on Christians and says that Christians are the evil that we need to protect our culture from? What do you do then? And the reason that I bring that question up is because that's contextually what is happening here. That is the backdrop and put you in which you were sh you should read the verses that we read. Now, I, now you remember when I, we first started First Peter, I did kind of this backdrop, kind of setting up the stage for this, and I and I talked about how Christians were viewed, and I wanted to see if you remember how were Christians viewed by Rome at this time in the stage of the game. Anyone remember? Troublemakers, particularly when it comes to the political affiliations. Yep. Why, though? They were seen as, someone said it. They were seen as anarchists. They were, Rome it was seen, now you have to understand this, there was no legal precedent against Christians at this time, but culturally, sort of the atmosphere, sort of the, the, the way that the politicians thought, in relation to Christians, is they were highly suspicious of Christians, and they actually did think that they would overthrow the Roman Empire. So that kind of sets up the big fire I told you about in the first sermon we did, how Nero burns the city of Rome down and blames the Christians, and every go, everyone, they seem like an easy scapegoat because they think that, Rome, that Christians are a bunch of terrorists that are going to take over and overthrow the world. They think them as evil people. Why do you think that they thought that they were evil people? No, first, let me go back and say, is that true? Let's say that. Let's start there. Do 
Do you think that that's true of Christians in that century? No? You guys aren't saying it with a bunch of confidence. Is it true of Christians in the first century that they wanted to overthrow Rome? No. So what gave them that idea? They were counter-cultural. They stopped going, yeah. They stopped going to the temple. Remember how I told you that? That in Rome, there is no separation of church and state. And in Rome, the culture was this. Rome thought it was epic. It thought it was a major superpower, that it was the best country in the world. We're the best, everyone else isn't. And the reason that they thought that was because they, uh, because of the gods blessed Rome. Okay? So, your religion and your politics were deeply tied together. So it wasn't just you went to the temple for the spirituality aspect. There was an act of patriotism too that went, went along in it. And so when people became Christians, what do you think they stopped doing? They stopped going to the temple. And they actually, you know, it's, it wasn't just a religious thing. It was, it, was a, it was a knock against the empire itself. Okay? Well, they stopped going to the temple. They're not very patriotic. To give you a, a modern day example, it would be like not standing for the national anthem, Right? Maybe a little bit worse than that. But here, that's how it would work. Is Christians would stop going to the temple and they would stop, they would stop greeting each other in the, in the marketplace with the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Because in that day, Caesar was viewed as kind of a, a smaller deity. Christians didn't believe that all, obviously, so they didn't say it. So there became this very deep suspicion of Christians. That they were evil people. That they were bad people. And I actually think that's a very relevant question today for all Christians across the globe. How are we to act towards a government that sees us as evil? So if you were to talk about, and that's a question that all Christians wrestle with across the globe. Because there are, the truth is, is there, are there are Christians that are being persecuted right now by governments. Right? who see it as a sort of threat to their way of life, to the way that they act, to the way that they behave. And I would argue that at some level, maybe not a legal level, but we kind of feel it here too. I was uh, listening to, American politics are always fun. Right? But I was listening, you should really listen to a more kind of anti-Christian, anti, uh, you know, more atheistic, more secular point of view American politics, because here's what they say. A lot of them are, are afraid of Christians, right? The Christians are going to take over the United States, and they're going to drag women out into the streets and kill them, and do public mess, uh, all these public mass, uh, or incarcerate them because of uh, they, they aborted their babies. We're going to start protesting all these kind of like, or we're going to start stony people who who uh, struggle with homosexuality, all that kind of thing. I've heard it, man. They, they literally go, if Christians take over the country, this is going to happen. This is going to be evil, 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 evil. And so you and I are dealing with it, at least in, in a, maybe not the same regard that they're dealing with the text, but we are dealing with this kind of um, posture or kind of feeling that, you know, Christians aren't necessarily the best people in the world, 
I don't know where they got that idea, but then you and I step into it and say, we're not that bad of a people. We love Jesus. We think that uh, Jesus is good. And that is the context in which you should read this text. Because that's what's going on for them. Okay? Rome thinks we're bad. The politicians think we're bad. We start riots. We're unpatriotic. And they go to Peter and they say, Peter, we're suffering. We're being mistreated. And we don't know how to act. We don't know what to do. Should we fight? Should we do this? And then Peter gives them a response. And he says this. And I want, I want you to, if you're taking notes, it's this. It's, if, and this is a Dan Renton paraphrase. You say it better, right? But it's this. If they think, Peter's advice to them is this. If they think and insist on the fact that you are the bad guy, you are to show them that you are the good guy. That's the posture it starts out with. The Bible says it a lot more eloquently than I do. It says this. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles here is not a reference to those who are Jewish. It's a reference to those who are unbelieving. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may, when they speak against you as what? Evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's kind of like this, right? The idea is, is they're insistent to say that you're the evil one, that you're the worst that humanity could ever produce. Then that Peter's advice to them is to, sh is to say, live in such a way where they, you're the good guy. Another, maybe a more elegant way to say that. Actually, I'm going to go back and flip this. Uh, here, It's actually the theme, I don't know if you've caught this or not, but it's the theme throughout the entire book of 1 Peter. Yeah. Remember how I told you that 1 Peter's goal in background, the whole thing is how to have a steadfast faith in the, faith, in the face of persecution. So everything you read in the text has to uh, align to that. And what I would say is this, is that it really boils down to two things. Peter tells you two things. How to think and how to act. And with regards to how you think about your suffering, it's that you are to treasure Jesus above all else. In regards to how you are to act regarding your suffering, you are to act in a way where the accusations don't stay. Okay? Look at the text. Okay? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds. Or this, for what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? But if you do good and suffer, you endure. Or when it talks about wives, it says this, if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the good conduct. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is by the will of God, that by doing good, you should what? Silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Verse 13. Now, who is, who is there to harm you if you are ready to do good? Or for chapter 3, verse 15 to 16. Have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who reveal your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's this idea that you and I are, when people say that we're bad people, when they accuse us of evil things, our conduct among them is so airtight that they're being forced to say, actually, maybe that's not true. Okay? 
Another way to say that would be to act in such a way that silences the accusations or to leave no room uh, for question. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to see if I have time to do this. I'm going to give you a little bit of an illustration of that. So, uh, I hope this works out. So this actually happened to me you know, uh, and, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago now. And uh, I'm kind of curious what you think about this. So I'm going to set up a scenario. I'm going to give you two responses to this scenario. And you tell, tell me which one you would you would trust more. Okay. So scenario, so overall scenario, there is a person in church that is a falsely accusing a leader of evil. Okay? Everyone understand? Okay. Now here's the scenario. There was a church event that was being held at somebody's house, someone's private house, and there were minors and there were youth leaders there. Okay? One of the girls, the teenage girls, noticed and spotted that in the house there's these beautiful paintings and these beautiful work in the, in the basement. So she goes down to the basement. Okay? And there's a youth leader. Okay? In scenario number one, the youth leader follows the girl down to the basement. In scenario number two, the youth leader stays upstairs with the rest of the kids. The youth leaders. Okay? In both scenarios... Girl has falsely accused uh, the youth leader of doing evil, okay? but in both cases he didn't do it. Okay? Which version of the youth leader would you trust? The one that went downstairs, or the one? But there was nothing he didn't do anything wrong. Or would you trust the one who was upstairs? Which one would you trust? Upstairs. Why? There's no room to question, right? In one scenario, even if he was innocent, everyone's still asking, and everyone's still wondering what's going on, right? In the other scenario, there's no room to question it. That's sort of the idea in the text, is that you are to live your life in such a way where people are to bring accusations of being an evil person, about doing bad things, about being an anarchist, or overthrowing the government, whatever it is, that you are to live your life in such a way where there's no room for question. And it's that way throughout every single thing, through government, through slaves, through husbands and wives, through everything about how you suffer. Do not act in such a way that gives credit to the accusation. Okay? And so basically, that, he outlines that, and he talks about that for, for, for about 15 verses. But the verse that he, he talks about is how does that, how does that live out He's just going to say this. He's just going to say, hey, I need you to keep the conduct of men and the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of evil, they may, they may see your good deeds. And then he says this in the next verse. He says, uh, for the sake of the Lord, um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay. So he's really going to say, hey, how do you live that out in terms of government? What do you do when the government sees you as the bad guy? And he's going to say the very first action that you are to do is you are to submit and you are to honor. Now let me talk about this really quickly. Um, uh, i got to make sure i got the text right here. Okay. <clears throat> it 
it says this. So these, this idea of submission really means that you are recognizing, you are voluntarily dis- submitting to or coming under or kneeling under the authority of another person. Okay? It's this idea that you are coming before him and saying, okay, I agree with you, I don't agree with you, and I'm going to submit in that action. Okay? So the idea then is, is that you and I really struggle with that. There's a tension in our hearts. Do you feel it? I would feel it. I feel it all the time. And I'm going to give you two reasons why you actually feel that this morning. The first is, is that it's in our fleshly nature to rebel against any authority. Our parents, our work, God, and government. Second reason is that we do believe, we do live in a culture where there is a fair amount of distrust. Sometimes I hear Christians say that government is the problem, that we need to resist government, and we need to be suspicious of government because they have an agenda, they are corrupt. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, maybe that's true. But for a minute, I want you to put yourselves in the, in the, in the shoes of the people who are writing this. And I want you to understand that that was probably true of those authorities as well. They were bad people. And Peter's advice to them is to begin with submission and honor. Now, a lot of Christians ask this, and why do you do it? You do it for the sake of Jesus. So it's telling you what to do, be subject, and it's telling you who to do it to, to every human institution, and it's telling you why to do it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Okay. goes on to say, whether it is to the emperor supreme or is to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, what happens when faith and government clash? Right? What happens when faith and government clash? Well, for that, I want to take you back to one verse, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a what? Holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. Or, and I, what that says, though, is that you and I, our citizenship ultimately is not of this earth, that, our, that we don't belong here, that we actually is our citizenship, our passport, stamped with the citizenship of heaven. We are part of God's kingdom. And our allegiance, our first allegiance as Christians is to Jesus and to his country and to his kingdom. Okay? That you and I are uh, we're in, so here's here's the deal is that you and I, like if, if there is an issue where uh, our government or our culture combats against the word of God, combats against in Jesus, and you are forced to decide whether or not you are here or here, every believer goes with on King Jesus. Okay? And I've given a few examples of this from the text, or, or sorry, I've said it like this. Uh, this isn't my idea, but I really liked it. He said this. And the, the whole reason whether you submit or you don't submit is, is based on Jesus himself. The loophole that gets us out of submission is the exact same reason we are commanded to submit. Why are we commanded to submit to government according to that? For the, 
sake of Jesus. And I would say this, that's the exact same reason you get out of it. <laughs> Everything that you do or don't do is for the sake of Jesus. So I would render it like this. The loophole is not if the authority is evil, but when the authority commands you to do evil. And I've put a bunch of text to show you that that's actually very scriptural. I give you four examples straight from the word of God. Every single one of these are examples where Christians have, or believers have honored the government, have actually honored bad leaders, but eventually they come to a place in their life where they say, this is the commandment that the government is asking me to do and I can't do it. So a very good example is Exodus 117. Uh, this is the story of Pharaoh. He's kind of saying, hey, you got to kill the babies. And this is what happens. The two midwives, they fear God. And what does it say? They allow the boys to live. They honor God. Okay? Peter, who actually wrote what I just told you, the, the guy that said honor the government, was actually the guy that disobeyed. Right? Acts chapter 5, verse 29. When the Sanhedrin told him not to preach to Jesus, he says a very famous line. He says, we must obey God rather than man. Okay? Daniel chapter 3, verse 18. You know, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were asked about down to an evil king. They obeyed the evil king to that point. But they said, no, we won't bow down. Or the example of Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6, verse 18, when he prayed and I and all this. So that's sort of the thing, is that you and I are to sue. When the government sees you as, as the bad guy, the best way is to honor the government and submit to the government only when the issue is that they are not asking you to clash with you. Is everyone clear on that? Okay, moving on. Why does God want us to do that? It's found in the next verse. It says this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good that you should put to silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Remember how I told you that the posture of the government at this point is that Christians are evil, Christians are bad. They're the ones that are going to destroy our culture, going to destroy our world. They're the bad people. And so Peter's, Peter's whole argument is this, is if they think that way, then submit to them so that you can silence the talk of, or silence the ignorance of foolish people. I've given a couple examples of this that come straight out of the Bible in Old Testament and New Testament 1. This comes from Acts chapter 25, verse 8. And if you know the story, you know that Paul is in prison for Jesus. Right? And we jump into his trial. And he's defending himself. And this is what he says. He says, I have not broken the law of the Jews. I have not broken against the temple. Nor have I broken against Rome. I shouldn't be in prison. I didn't do anything wrong. Same thing in Daniel chapter 6 and 4. You know this story where he goes into the lion's den and the, the satraps try to find something legally that they can accuse him of. He says this. Then the officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So something he's doing in regards to the law. But they could not find no ground of complaint or any fault because he was faithful. This guy obeyed the law. This guy drove 10 kilometers under the speed limit. Okay. There was nothing that they could pin on him. And if you know how the story goes, it goes like this. When it comes to 
Peter's trial, they say this. This man has done nothing to deserve death or punishment. In Daniel, they say this. We found no ground against complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The idea being then is that they are so law-abiding that the only way they're going to take him out is to put the faith against the law. That's how you and I react. To that level. Okay? So that we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And then he talks about the idea of honor. And we'll end with this. It says, everyone, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and fear the emperor. So let's start with the, the state, honor everyone. What it's in, I want you to stop and think of what that means. It's in relation to the government. So I would argue that what it's trying to say here is not just honor everyone in the broad sense, like all the people, but I actually think it also refers to everyone who serves the state, the tax collector, the police, the fire department. Police should know that Christians are thankful for their service. Amen? Amen. That Christians will honor them. Police work is hard work. Firefighting is hard work. Uh, <clears throat> EMTs, uh, all that kind of thing is hard work. Love the brotherhood and then fear God. And then it says this, honor the emperor. And I want you to catch that I wanted you to catch something very particular about this text here. It says that it's telling you to honor the emperor and it's telling you to honor everyone. And it's the same adjective. So in other words, what it's trying to say is that, uh, commentators put it this way, is, is that you were to honor the emperor the same way that you would honor everyone else. And that works in twofold. Okay, One, So you say thankful for them. You, you don't wish ill intention to them. You don't treat them less. And so I would, I would argue this is like if you're looking for a great practical way to do that, I would, I would say that the best way that you could do that is when our governing authorities, our mayor, our prime minister, our premier, do something or make a law that is in the right reason I say that, that it's so important that you honor them in that way is that because our world, Christians, Christians do not have the vast majority of the, the cultural kind of like sway right now, okay? So if there is a law or a decision that they make that lines up with the word of God, you can bet for certain that those who are opposed to it 
there's a, I want to give you a, as a closing, I want to give a good example of, of how this was done. Uh, this is an organization that I was I became aware of all the way in 2005. It's called For My Canada, and it's a bunch of young adults who go to the government and wage uh, sort of like they lobby for Christian ideals, particularly uh, social issues that Christians would care about, things like abortion, things like same-sex marriage, uh, traditional marriage, feeding the poor, all that kind of thing. And so what they do is they send out teams of young adults to meet with the MPs. 